Welcome back to Millennium Live, the official podcast of the Millennium Alliance. Our co-founder, Alex Sobel, has enjoyed his time behind the mic, talking with some of the most influential figures and prominent digital transformers to talk about life and leadership. We're excited to highlight some of the great moments from these distinguished interviews. First up, we're taking it back to episode 50, when Alex first got to sit down with Ben Rhodes, former national security advisor during the Obama administration, and how one defining moment in American history paved the path of his career. As a young boy growing up in Manhattan, were you always interested in current events and politics? Not just one day you were a speechwriter for the Obama campaign. What kind of led to that? Growing up in New York, I was in a very politically aware family. You know, my brother ended up being president of CBS News, so I, we get asked, what happened in your house? And, and I think a part of it is just like, we were encouraged to debate politics, to be involved in politics. I thought I wanted to be a writer, though. That was kind of my intent when I went off to college. And so I always had that interest in politics and political campaigns and, and worked on a number of campaigns, but was following a trajectory where I thought I'd go into writing, publishing, journalism. And all of that really did shift in, in one moment. It was a 9-11. I was working a city council campaign, and New York's election day was on September 11th, the primary election. And I was in North Brooklyn, had kind of an unobstructed view of the Trade Center. So I saw the attack unfold. I saw the second plane hit and then the first tower fall. And to me, I just remember walking home and having an incredible sense that whatever I was going to do in my life, I was 24 at the time, was going to be tied to the response to this event that I'd just seen. You know, that, that I wanted my life to connect to these bigger events that were going to transpire around me. And that kind of propelled me down to D.C. to interview for jobs. Again, I thought in, in journalism, that's what a writer would do. But I was encouraged, well, you know, think about being a speechwriter, which is not a line of work that people <laughs> tend to think of going into. But it ended up being a great fit for me because it allowed me to be politically engaged while also being a writer, which is, was my principal kind of skill set. And, you know, five, six years in D.C., working in foreign policy and speechwriting, ended up positioning me to join the Obama campaign as a, as a speechwriter. And everything that happened since is kind of tied to those initial decisions. I had no plan to work in the White House. I had curiosity about the world. I had a passion for writing, an interest in politics. And I just kind of followed those interests. And I always like to say that if I had had a plan to be Deputy National Security Advisor, I never would have become Deputy National Security Advisor. <laughs> it was just doing what I felt motivated to do in, in circumstances that, that opened doors for me. Next, we have Suzette Kent, the U.S. government's first female CIO, who's actually still deciding what she wants to be when she grows up. But she is sure of one thing, family obligations and serving her country will always be top priorities. Do you have anything that, like, that you're focused on that's important to you to achieve now? Like, Where, where, where are you spending your time? What, what, what's kind of in the next chapter for you? Well, Alex, I told you at the beginning, I still ask the question every day, what am I going to do when I grow up? <laughs> because I do feel like that. I, I've been on, you know, different things when people say, you know, talk to me about your career path and your plan. And a lot of it, it didn't plan. Opportunities came up and it was like, wow. And I let both the two things, my family priorities and, and places where I'm passionate and I think I can make a contribution drive those. So right now, you know, I, I've had some family things that I needed to focus on that had something to do with, you know, my timing for coming back to the state of Texas, but I'm also continuing to work on how we build a technology workforce of the future for our nation, 
that can serve all industry. So whether it's private sector or government, and I'm doing that through involvement with technology companies and university foundations and university groups. LSU is a place that I love spending time and putting some energy, but you know, also working with others. I am also uh, working with growing companies, those who are focused on serving their communities in new and innovative ways that stimulate our economy and individually working also with some state and local government individuals for many of the same challenges. They're common in federal. They just get harder and harder in state and local governments because they have fewer resources. It's much more difficult. You know, we talk about gaps and roles in federal government. It's harder for state and locals, you know, as well. Their funding models are different. But mm-hmm. there are many of the things that are federal related services, healthcare, government benefit programs that are actually delivered by our states. It may be a federal program, but the person who touches the citizen and works with the person who is either vulnerable or in need is actually in the states. And so, you know, we saw the the gaps with unemployment, you know, Mm -hmm. right as the start of the pandemic. But that's one example of places where we need to use technology to fill a gap to make sure those who need certain services can get those quickly, efficiently, and consistently. There's one thing we already know about Alex Sobel and Brad Wilson, the CEO emeritus of Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina. They're both avid readers. This snippet from episode 107 clues us in on the latest great reads. I'm a big reader. I don't know if you can see in the back. I got my little library back here. So I'm always looking for for good books. Are there any and I, and I like to read a lot of biographies. Over the past year or two, I've, I've read some good ones um, about all different types of figures, predominantly political figures. I read a really good book on FDR. I read a really good book on Richard Nixon. But are there any biographies that come to mind that, that you think would be worthwhile for, for me or anybody to take a look at? Well, yes. And I'll mention the author because uh, authors as well, uh, because uh, many authors, I'll read about anything they write because I'm familiar with them and I know they do good work. But of course, if you haven't read a team of rivals to me that's a leadership book that happens to be a history book that's yeah i know that that's that's the one about lincoln right yeah 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 yeah, that's right i want to read it it's a big read well and it's one that you can read and then have a diversion with um, you know finish uh uh, the obama book at the Mm -hmm. simultaneous it's not that you got to put your head down and plow through but doris kern's goodwin does a does a great job yeah she's great truly i think it is a it is a leadership book and I talk to university classes, I get this question, and when I'm talking about leadership, which I do with some regularity, and I will point to that, that is a book about leadership, and you need to read it with that eye, sure. as well as reading the chronological history and the political dynamics of the time. I'm a big fan of John Meacham, oh, of um, and I, I think that his book of uh, President Bush the first yeah. is extraordinary. Again, I just got chill bumps thinking about the book, but about everything that John uh, Meacham writes, I, I read. I read yeah. a very good biography of, um, of uh, Woodrow Wilson a number oh. of years ago, written by John Cooper, which I also thought was a, was a leadership book, as well as a well-written uh, narrative history of, of his life and, and his presidency. I'm currently reading uh, a biography of Beethoven. 
which is completely out of character for me because I'm not a musician, but it is the 250th anniversary, uh, Beethoven's 250th anniversary, and uh, I've learned a lot, and it's a quite intriguing and fascinating. I wouldn't say it's a leadership book, mm-hmm. but it's taught me a lot about music. And the next thing I'm just ready to pick up, and I can't wait to get to it, is the recent biography of uh, Malcolm X Okay, uh, that the, the Paines did. It got some airtime a couple of months ago when it first came out because of uh, uh, the death of Les Payne before the publication of the book. Uh, I'm listening to a podcast called Words Matter. And uh, just yesterday, they had a segment on Malcolm X where sure. you actually hear some of the speeches that he made in 1964. And so it's a nice warm up for this, um, this biography of a figure that I really don't know that much about. I read his book back in the day when I was yeah. in high school, but that's the last time I've really given much thought about Malcolm X and the whole civil rights movement from that context. Mm-hmm. I'll close with this. It's an article uh, yeah. that I would recommend to you. I think it was in the New York Times, but when you're in charge, your whisper is a shout and the title says it all. One thing that I learned as I went moved through my career, I'm not a big fan of titles, but they're necessary in an, in an org chart. That the more, the bigger your title, and the more, the more uh, authority that you either have, real or perceived, the more impactful your words are, all the time, every time. And that article puts a really good perspective on the importance of being careful and clear when you are in positions that of authority where your decision and your voice can take up more space sometimes than you really intend for it to, and the ramifications of that on an organization or an individual. Happy reading. Yeah, you, you've motivated me to, to finally brave a team of rivals. I've, I've, I've got it on my Amazon like a wish list because I look at it, but I'm always like, I'll get to that later. I might finally give it a go. Well, I think it'll be like uh, eating uh, potato chips if you do. Once you have a couple of them, you'll, you'll keep going. But uh, it is a book that you can put down and come back to and not feel disadvantaged because it, you wanted to spend some time somewhere else. Yeah, Lincoln was on the other day. and Every time it's on, I just watch it. It's an unbelievable film. It's unbelievable acting in the story, which I know some of that is pulled from that book. It's quite fascinating. If there's something at the very top of Alex's bucket list, it's to visit the West Wing of the White House. Well. David Shulkin, former Secretariat for U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, has been there plenty of times and shares some intriguing details from the heart of the executive branch. I wanted to ask you because um, I've only ever been to the White House in the East Wing. My goal one day is to get a West Wing tour and see all the fun stuff. I'm curious about what your first experience was like in the West Wing. Was it what you imagined it to be? How was it different? What did you feel when you went into the Oval Office, what, what was that first experience like? I was in the White House many times during the Obama administration. The West Wing is actually much smaller than people realize it. I've heard that. It has not been renovated in a long time. It has old technology. It, you know, relatively cramped space. There's only really two meeting rooms in the West Wing itself, the Roosevelt room. And the cabinet room, right? And the cabinet room. And the cabinet room generally is reserved only when the president is there. So the meeting room is primarily the Roosevelt room. And that's that's across from the Oval Office, right? It is across from the Oval Office, but it's a relatively condensed space. President Obama did not have many visitors in the Oval Office. He reserved that for people that were dignitaries or very special meetings. President Trump 
liked to be in the Oval Office. So he would invite most of our meetings with the president were just hanging out in the Oval Office. My wife would come into the Oval Office. We'd have large group meetings with veterans in the Oval Office. He just, he felt that it was a very special place and he wanted to show other people and make them feel comfortable there. It was a very different style, but it's a very, it's a very small space. It's a place that has a great deal of dignity and, you know, shows a lot of what the government is like. And so the thing about the West Wing is, is that it's filled, the hallways are filled with photographs taken by the White House photographer, and they're constantly switching the photographs. So if the president takes a trip overseas, you'll see the walls filled with the overseas trip. A week later, you may see those those photographs replaced with something else. So it's always a fascinating place to be. And you're always looking to see if you might be in those photographs, because The secret is you can put a yellow sticky on the back of a photograph with your name on it. And when they're rotated off, if your name is on the back, they will actually send you that photograph. So it's sort of fun and you want to go over and see which pictures are changed. The only other thing that's primarily in the West Wing besides people's offices and only certain people's offices is the mess hall. And the Navy runs what you would call the dining rooms. And that's a, that's a very special place in which you can have a meal, you know, prepared by the Navy, which is done in a really nice way. And it's a great place to, to enjoy a meal. The first time you ever entered the Oval Office, was it, what was that experience like? I, I plan to be in the Oval Office one day in my life because I, I would love to see it. I'm just curious what that experience was like. Was it what you expected? The first time was during the Trump administration because, you know, with President Obama, I was not invited into the Oval. I was met with him in the Roosevelt room. I met with him in the cabinet room, but not in the Oval. So yeah, it was a great honor to be to be in the Oval Office. There are many different variables that can shape one's career. Family is as important as any other. Pradeep Goel, CEO at Selfcare, shared how his upbringing had a large impact on his entrepreneurial journey. I would love for you to touch upon where you grew up in India, what your family life was like, what you were interested in as a kid, and then uh, eventually what brought you to the United States after college? Sure, Alex. So that's certainly going down the memory lane. I haven't really thought about it in a long while, but I was born in India, in uh, the northern part of India, just in the south of the Himalayas, in the foothills, as they call it. And my father was a judge and a lawyer, but he came from a large business family. So my, my uncles and his brothers were all running fairly large businesses. And my mother also came from a large business family. So they were entrepreneurs, but successful ones, multi-generational families that had built businesses over decades and, and some even going into over a century. So business was something that you grew up around, even though my father was not really actively, uh, he was actively practicing law and he was a fairly successful lawyer. And then he went on to become a judge and then he eventually retired to go back to being a lawyer. So I grew up around two things, law and business. But we also, some of my family members were quite deep into healthcare. Physicians were a big part of our life. You know, my great uncle was a physician and he had a whole clinical system that he was managing. But it was a rural, regional system, right? Nothing national. But certainly you got to see how healthcare works, you know, when it really does work. The very personal touch that really drives the value and quality of outcomes. I went to engineering school. Uh, First, when we we moved around a lot, as a judge, he was moved around every three years, he was moved to a different uh, legal jurisdiction. So I had to shuffle around in lots of different schools when I was young. So that basically evolved into a love of books, because when you move a lot, you don't make that many 
friends, you end up essentially becoming an avid reader. My mom tells a story fondly that we were living in a relatively small town. And one over one summer, I came to her and I complained the library was devoid of any more books. I'd run through them all. <laughs> it probably was more of a hyperbole, but the point was I read a lot. And that made me very curious. And I, I still read to this day. Were you, were you encouraged by your parents to read or, or were they reading and it was just kind of part of the family culture? I think my mom was definitely, my father was a constant reader. You know, as, a, as a lawyer, he saw it to his necessity of his profession to read all the time. My mom was also an avid reader, uh, and she still is. My mom is one of the most fascinating readers. She now is in her late 70s, and she devours a book every other two, three days. Oh, wow. And, and she reads, you know, not fiction, but she's a big fan of history. And uh, the other day I visited her, and she started telling me all about Roosevelt's wife and how she had an impact on our society and how she sure. was a force behind it. And she pulled out three, four books that she had just finished reading about Roosevelt and his family and the impact they had on our country and the world. I've got a great book offline uh, that she'll like. She may have read it already about FDR. So I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll send you that recommendation. Yeah, so she's still an incredible um, source of knowledge for me and inspiration. Stephen Clasco, the president of Thomas Jefferson University and CEO at Jefferson Health, took us on a journey to the year 2030 during his Millennium Alliance keynote. During his interview with Alex, Dr. Clasco didn't hold back in defining the areas in healthcare that need to be completely rethought. There's a great Upton Sinclair quote. It goes something like, it's hard to get somebody to do something when their salary depends upon them not doing it. And that's, that's really healthcare. If Insurance. You describe healthcare economics, it's that. Yeah. I make a lot of money by having people come into my very expensive and efficient ED, and the insurance companies will pay for that. And, you know, until the pandemic started, you know, would hardly pay for telehealth at all. It's so incredibly different than any other market-driven economy, where the more people that come in sick with really sick conditions, the more money I'm going to make. Look at insurers, right? I mean, think about a model. Their entire model is based on what's called a medical loss ratio. You've probably heard that, right? Yep. So that means how much can I convince your company to pay me more for insurance this year for your employees? And how little do I have to pay out next year? I mean, that's a medical loss ratio. That's the business. There's nothing illegal about it. But there's no other country that lives on that kind of fragmented model where our economics are based on having a lot of sick people come to my hospital. Their economics are based on, you know, how can I expand the middle? Here's something bizarre. You know, you watch the morning TV shows, right? Mm -hmm. You ever wonder why there's so many commercials for drugs for stage four lung cancer? I mean, think about that. You know, I mean, I'm sure you've seen these commercials. Do you have stage four lung cancer? You know, ask your doctor about blank and they show some person that goes from oxygen to frolicking in the weeds. Why? Because that drug is like $400,000 <laughs> and not everybody is gonna benefit from it. But if you have stage four lung cancer and you see that commercial and your doctor didn't recommend that, you're going to be like, and say, hey, I want to be like that guy that was frogging with his grandson in the weeds. Why didn't you give me that? Well, our research has shown. So I've had my doctor say, look, I'm trying to do the right thing. This is not, it's not going to hurt her, but she's not going to do a lot better. But if the country's going to let them advertise $400,000 drugs and get people to pressure me for a half hour, I'll give it to her. So, I mean, I think we have this, we, we have this, our whole book was we have this sick care mentality that is based on everybody making more money from people being sick or from expanding the middle or from buying expensive drugs. And that would be great if money was unlimited and we had the healthiest country in the world. But A, money isn't unlimited. And B, 
when you look at where we are in most parameters, we're like somewhere between, you know, 18 or 19 in health. From my perspective, if you don't take the for-profit motive out of that, how do you change behavior? So I think, because I think, you know, when you look at other markets, so if, if we demanded real transparency, and I think this is where the, the private market will have, we're working with a company that's going to employers and basically saying, look, we can cut your cost by a lot by guiding your patients to the best quality, access, cost, and user experience thing. And, and you know, I think, I think where we will move to is a model where it'll be very transparent what the cost is at Jefferson, what the outcomes for that procedure are at Jefferson, what patients say about us at Jefferson are, and then they can go to other places almost like a kayak. And the places that can't make it work will go away, which will be good, or will get, or will get acquired by places that are doing a better job. We have 43 hospitals in Philadelphia. Some are leapfrog D hospitals, that, that's a quality parameter, mm-hmm. uh, that are some of the most expensive hospitals. How many hospitals do you see go away or go bankrupt? So until we get into either a government-run or a market-driven approach. And in a market-driven approach where consumers really know what they're getting and how much it's costing, then I at Jefferson have to continue to make my quality better at a lower cost. And I I, I do believe that'll happen. Timeline for that, would you say? I'd say five years. I think we'll start to see some more and more models, not coming from the government, but coming from some of the Silicon Valley folks that are really starting to, you know, there's one company we're working with that's really taking on the 5% of people, underserved people that use 50% of the resources and really going out to their homes with community health workers and technology. We're working with Comcast around, you know, getting people um, uh, broadband. Bad, bad zip codes, broadband. We're working with company Novartis because they've looked at cardiovascular risk being 20 times greater in certain zip codes about how we can get out to barber shops and how we can use technology. I'm optimistic that some of those market things will happen because again, if they don't, the bow's just going to break. It's not a libertarian thing. It's just that you can't expect government to solve an industry's problem. We know that Howard Krieger is the chief executive officer of Unfederal Reserve. But did you know that while he was very young, he was reading code and making video games with his sister? I don't know if you remember, if you wanted a video game at Toys R Us, you had to go get the little slip of paper and then you'd pay and bring it yes. to the front. Yes, right? I remember that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I would go at, like every once in a while, my mom had to go get birthday presents for somebody and I'd always want the video games and, you know, we, were, we really didn't have the budget for it. So, you know, we'd go home and, and my dad would be like, why are you buying video games? He's like, just make them. And so <laughs> uh, during the week, I think library day in elementary school was either Thursday or Friday. They'd have like Nintendo Power Magazine which is like a short kind of flip through of all the cheats and stuff. But the back was always like a basic program. And, uh, you know, Saturday mornings, my sister, my older sister and I would be downstairs with our TRS-80 computer hooked up to a black and white monitor. And we would literally read lines of code to each other. And like normal kids are playing sports and stuff. And me and my sister are like programming our own video games. And by lunch, you know, we'd have like a dot bouncing on the screen or something. Uh, But (laughs) We were so excited, you know, like when it worked, it was great. And I grew up in this household, but what was interesting was, you know, my father was the son of a butcher and my grandfather, like when you talk about toiling away, you know, the big hunks of meat, his own shop, he was his own businessman. And my, my, so my father grew up with his father being like, do something different. Don't do what I do, do something better, do something different. And my father, God bless, was like, you do the same thing, how, you know, just, just do your own thing. Don't, don't necessarily follow on what I'm doing. 
If there's anyone who is driving transformative healthcare initiatives at scale, it's Dr. Jay Bott, also known to many of his patients as the dancing doctor. I was just curious what you're thinking about in terms of objectives over the next few years, something that you're hoping to be working on in the near and foreseeable future. Thanks, Alex, for that. I, I think for me, the thing I want to continue to do is drive forward reimagining health and healthcare for our nation's most vulnerable. I would also say I'd want to drive impact at scale. So I want to be in, in circumstances and doing work drives impact at scale towards an affordable, accessible, high quality, equitable healthcare delivery system. And, and also, I think I want to continue to grow, I think the impact and the work around health equity, uh, which I think is a, a critical issue. Uh, I say this issue that, you know, for America, health inequities is its chronic condition so that we've continually put band-aids on these issues and we've got to go upstream and kind of redesign. And we're seeing some of this stuff happen now and it's really exciting. And I would say, you know, the final thing is a continued dancing. Uh, my patients call me the dancing doctor. <laughs> so as a kid, I was always interested in dance, dance thanks to my family, and uh, but didn't realize that it not only would save my career as a doctor um, in residency, but in, in medical school, but it also helped me meet patients where they're at and move them to a place where they could actually engage with my, me and each other. And it was sort of become a, a tool in my health toolbox. So I would dance at my patient's bedside, pulling grins and laughs from them. <laughs> and, um, you know, it wasn't something that I initially saw as something that could be part of my, my role as a doctor, but it just really became something that is important to do for me, uh, both in the community with my patients and for a while I taught um, a dance class. And I think it creates this community and energy of people who connect in the class and, and make sure. decisions about their health. And so I think, you know, being an agent for change and doing it at scale is really what drives me and, and challenging kind of the status quo. Well, your community is lucky to have you, that, that's for sure. That actually would be a, a pretty good social media handle, The Dancing Doctor, if you ever wanted to. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you have an Instagram I account, kind of, I, Yeah, I kind of have that on Twitter. It's called at Pungra J. Pungra is a North Indian folk dance Okay, uh, from, the, from the state of Punjab, which is a northern state in India. I use that handle uh, with this sort of exact kind of thing in mind, Alex. In his most recent episode, Alex got to catch up with a longtime friend, entrepreneur, and co-founder of Iconic, Mark Mastrandrea. If there's one thing we can all learn to be successful in whatever it is we decide to do for a living, creating value may just be it. A lot of what I always thought was special about Iconic was how you utilized your relationships to help build the brand, where you made connections with great companies, a lot of, a lot of famous people helped, got involved in the brand as well. Was that part of the plan to go after what, I guess, quote unquote, influencers or you know, because you were in LA, you were in you were in the entertainment capital of the world. Was that like an active or methodical process in, in helping use your relationships to build the brand? That is a methodical life process that I'm going to instill in the human that I reproduce with my future wife from when he's four years old. It's about <laughs> relationships and giving value first. I just always was the guy that knew the people that could get people to things that would connect people. I'd connect people and not ask for finders fees. Like I was always just Give, 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 give. It's Gary Vaynerchuk 101. Give, 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 give. And then I have all of these favors that I put out there. When am I going to cash in? When is it going to make sense for me to cash in? And then now, obviously, I was incentivized to leverage those in cash in during this business and then understanding how to structure deals that they were mutually beneficial. And that just became the snowball for me to start these new relationships where like, I was in control now. I was part of these companies 
where I wasn't in control. I wanted to do something. They wanted to do it another way. So I had seen, if you just do right by people and you make realistic asks, like, you know me, I'm not afraid to fucking ask at all. So I wasn't afraid to ask. And I just went, I went for the jugular and with everything, I was very, very strategic in how I leveraged things where we got one license and we beat their 20 year poster license CQ one. So what did I do? I leveraged that to then go get the MBA. The MBA was the blue chip name. Then I had one blue chip. I used that blue chip to get the other one. So like we've, I think, especially lately, we've really formulated kind of like, I joked to my team around like iconic 6.0, kind of like how we're going to take this thing eventually to in some way, shape or form the finish line. You really need to think 10 steps ahead. I knew when I had the MBA license with the company before, I developed a relationship with this girl that her best friend I knew from two companies ago's mom, and I got her two internships with two different DJ companies. So then I tapped into that. She knew I was a good guy. Then I went to dinner with her mom, who's a licensing OG. And then I just knew that if I ever wanted the MBA license, it was theirs for the taking. And then what did I do? I crushed it with Muhammad Ali first. And then I just said, hello to my MBA contact. We got coffee. And then she came to me and wanted to give it to us. And now we've created an amazing business with the MBA, which by the way, we have an explosive MBA announcement coming soon, which I cannot wait. But yeah, man, it's just about understanding and knowing people really. Iconic at at the end of 27, 2018, simply was affordable artwork that you could buy on the internet. How would you describe Iconic now? So we made a very hard line in the sand where that bio that you read in the beginning, I got I to gotta scrape that off LinkedIn or wherever you got it from. We got we to gotta fix that up. <laughs> but for us, it's really just like the core focus of the company is, is to inspire and motivate through storytelling. And for us, originally it was art and we wanted to go narrow and deep on art and go past the motivational, inspirational art and get into more categories of art, whether it be you know, abstract art or different product mediums for art. Mm-hmm. But what we found out, which was more authentic to us, And what we knew there was bigger upside is we don't want to own the art category. We want to own the emotion of motivation and inspiration and then be able to extend into other product categories. So our kind of plan moving forward from a macro perspective, two different things, a more products. So you're going to see the same DNA messaging emotion on other products. And then B, we're going omni-channel. So we're going to be going into brick and mortar retail. We're going to be doing licensing deals. So we're going to go from going only on our website, canvas only to enormous expansion. Thanks for listening and be on the lookout for more episodes by Alex. In the meantime, subscribe to Millennium Live to listen and learn on life and leadership. Millennium Live is available for streaming on Apple, Spotify, Google, and any other platform where you listen to podcasts.